Daniel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is from the New Revised Standard Version. King Nebuchadnezzar is now out of the picture. King Belshazzar made a great festival for a thousand of his lords, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar commanded that they bring in the vessels of gold and silver that his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in vessels of gold and silver that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the wall of the royal palace next to the lampstand. The king was watching the hand as it wrote. Then the king's face turned pale and his thoughts terrified him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king cried aloud to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. And the king said to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever can read this writing and tell me its interpretation shall be clothed in purple, have a chain of gold around his neck, and rank third in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar became greatly terrified, and his face turned pale, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, when she heard the discussion of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. The queen said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts terrify you or your face grow pale. There is a man in your kingdom who is endowed with the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, he was found to have enlightenment, understanding, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and diviners, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king said to Daniel, So you are Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah. I've heard of you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that enlightenment, understanding, and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and tell me its interpretation, but they were not able to give the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you are able to read the writing and tell me its interpretation, you shall be clothed in purple, have a chain of gold around your neck, and rank third in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered in the presence of the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, or give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king, and let him know the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar kingship, greatness, glory, and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. He killed those he wanted to kill, kept alive those he wanted to keep alive, honored those he wanted to honor, and degraded those he wanted to degrade. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he acted proudly, he was deposed from his kingly throne and his glory was stripped from him. He was driven from human society and his mind was made like that of an animal. His dwelling was with the wild asses, donkeys. He was fed grass like oxen and his body was bathed with the dew of heaven until he learned that the Most High God has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and sets over it whomever he will. And you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. You've been, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. The vessels of his temple have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have been drinking wine from them. You've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose power is your very breath 
and to whom belong all your ways you have not honored. So from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed in purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made concerning him that he should rank third in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So this text perplexed historians. If you've ever read a commentary on Daniel chapter 5, you find that the entire commentary is about whether or not these events actually occurred. The thing that perplexes people is that there's no record of a Darius the Mede ever ruling Babylon, so people are perplexed about that. They think maybe he's an invention. Belshazzar is not actually the son of Nebuchadnezzar, but there was a ruler in between them who was not related to Nebuchadnezzar. Nabonidus, I believe, was his name, and Belshazzar is his son, so the sense in which he's Nebuchadnezzar's son is in terms of kingship, not in terms of family relationships. So that perplexes people. For years, Belshazzar wasn't known historically. There were no records of who he was. And yet, in recent days, last couple hundred years, they did find records of him. So the likelihood is that Darius is, is probably unfound yet, or he already has been found under another name which also happens in history. I think that's the most likely. But in any case, none of that is that important to this story other than to say it's most important that we take this as history because that's the way it's been written and that's the way I approach it. I'm going to assume this is all historically accurate to the perspective of Daniel, but you should know that if you ever did study on this text, you'd never get out of what I just started. I just gave it all to you. You'd never get out of that. You'll read for hours and hours and hours and you'll never get out of it. So that is, is the, the, the due diligence stuff. We can set that aside. Are we agreed? Pride has been an issue for the Babylonians. And it manifests itself in different ways. In Nebuchadnezzar, pride manifests itself in a pride in his nation, a kind of nationalism, he was proud of Babylon, thought of it as the greatest kingdom that had ever ruled the earth and none would ever be greater. And then he had a dream in which God told him that his kingdom was the head of gold on this statue and that other kingdoms would be made of lesser metals. And so, of course, Nebuchadnezzar assumed God even agreed with him that no nation would be greater than Babylon. And he, that puffed him up. Nebuchadnezzar was a proud man. His pride reached the heavens and God humbled him. In Belshazzar, there's a different kind of pride. It's not so much a pride of pomp, and it couldn't have been, because historically Belshazzar didn't live at the time Nebuchadnezzar did. In the days of Belshazzar, the, the Medes and the Persian kingdoms were rising. In fact, do you notice what he said in the story when you were listening to it? He said Daniel could be second in the kingdom? Third. Why third? Who's, well, because Belshazzar was second. He was already a vassal under this powerful kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. So Belshazzar was not in a place to have the kind of ego and pride that Nebuchadnezzar had. Belshazzar's takes a different form. Belshazzar is the heart of a rebel. He's the heart of a defeated kingdom throwing a party. He's the heart of a defeated king taking vessels from the treasury of another god and using them however he sees fit. 
This is a different kind of pride, right? It's not exactly ego, it's, it's rebelliousness in Belshazzar. And God doesn't much care for this pride any better than he cared for the last one. And that's really what the story is about. We're going to think through this story and think about the judgment that God is sending on Babylon. And I'll be as frank as I can about how this applies to our day, but I don't think that it is any surprise that we have been in Daniel during this season. But as we go through this story and we think about these judgments on Belshazzar and really on the whole nation of Babylon, the whole beginning chapter was, all these chapters have been judgment on them. We're going to think first about what it means to be careless with the things of God. What does it mean to worship the gods of gold and silver and wood and stone? Did Belshazzar actually think, we tend to read as very modern and postmodern people, we tend to think that these people actually worship these things the way that we see on TV, that they, that they just had a pile of gold here and a pile of silver there and a pile of wood over there and they worshiped them and they talked to them and they thought they were real. That's not really it. To worship gold and silver and precious things is to celebrate the glory of created things. So what Belshazzar more or less is doing, he he doesn't think he's offending the God of all creation. He just thinks he's getting these vessels and celebrating their glitter. Have you ever done that? Look at that beautiful tapestry. Can you imagine the artisanship it took to make it? Look at that beautiful sculpture. Can you imagine the skill it took to carve that? Look at that beautiful cathedral. Could you imagine the skill that it took to craft that? Look at the opulence. Look at the majesty. Just in looking at it or walking into its halls, I feel transported. This is the worship of gold and silver and wood. As human beings, we tend to think that the things we value, the things we prize, God also values, and God also prizes. And cathedrals are built, statues are carved, songs are written. This is more or less what Belshazzar is doing. He doesn't realize that what made those vessels holy was not that they were made of precious metals, or that they were carved with the skill of a craftsman, or that they glittered when the sun hit them right. What made those vessels holy was the presence in which they were kept and the use to which they were put. They were holy because they were vessels used in the worship of God. They were not holy because they were gold. They were not holy because they were silver. They were not holy because they were beautiful. They were not holy because they were spectacular. They were holy because they were in the presence of God. And he took what was in the presence of God and he brought it into the presence of his own ego. The disciples made this mistake too. Some might be thinking, you know, God commanded the building of this tabernacle and then later the temple. And it was pretty ornate. He wanted all kinds of cherubim woven into the tapestries. He wanted certain colors. If you remember the high priestly garments, they were filled with precious stones. So are you telling me that God doesn't care about all that stuff? Why then did he command it all? And I understand that. In fact, the disciples had the same misinterpretation. If you have Bibles, look with me at Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. We find this story of Jesus and his disciples. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. 
They're enamored with the temple. We're told that the temple of Herod was one of the great works of the ancient world, that many who were not religious would look at it with awe. It was beautiful. In many ways, it dwarfed the temple that Solomon had built. So they're not wrong. Enormous stones, some of which they say are still there in Jerusalem today. Beautiful craftsmanship. It was one of Herod, it was the crowning achievement in many ways of Herod's attempt to gain power over the Jewish people. So they're not wrong. It was beautiful. The disciples thought Jesus would say, yeah, this temple, this really honors my father. That's what they thought. Verse 2. Then Jesus asked them, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. Now we'll go on, but what Jesus is more or less saying, because they know Jesus is bringing the kingdom, by this point they know he is the Christ. They know that he is the Messiah. And what he's just told them, when the kingdom comes, this great monument you've built, I will destroy it. This is one of the accusations against him when he is crucified. Do you remember? Right before when they're trying to get him condemned, the witnesses are really broken up about this. They claim he said he would destroy the temple and raise it in three days. And they did not like it. But they had misunderstood what God values. Verse 3. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will this be? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? And then Jesus starts to talk to them about the end of days. They're perplexed that Jesus said that the greatest of their monuments would be destroyed, that the temple given to Moses, built by Solomon, and in many ways they thought perfected by Herod, would not be there in the new heavens and the new earth. They had misunderstood. And humans make this mistake constantly, and so did Belshazzar and the Babylonians. We think that what we value, God values. We think that what impresses us, impresses him but we could not be more wrong. God is not impressed with what glitters or the acoustics or the tones that come out of our instruments or the skill with which we can sing or speak or write or carve or build. God can do these things just by speaking. What God values is a people who love the Lord, their God, with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength, and who love their neighbors as themselves. It's all he's looking for. There is nothing else. Most of us, when we deal with God, we deal with him the way Belshazzar does. We deal with him selfishly. We deal with this sometimes when we read the scriptures. When we read the scriptures, what are we looking for? Are we looking for something for me? Or are we looking to understand God? Do you feel it's been a successful study of the word if you walk away with something you can use? Or if you understand God better? The word was given to you so you could understand him. So that you would know him. When you sit down with your significant other or even with one of your children, a good person, a good person asks about that person to know them better. Not simply to know how I can work the angles and get out of you what I want. We've talked about this before. 
But this is Belshazzar, and these are the gods of the ancient world. Every ancient pagan who came to worship was trying to figure out from priests and prophets and enchanters and diviners how to manipulate the gods to get what they want. And Christians have fallen into the same thing. We don't worship because we expect to get anything out of it. We do not worship because we will personally benefit from it. That's not why we're called to worship. Now, following Jesus and doing good all has its rewards. What we reap is what we will sow. We see the way the world, God has created the world. But we come to worship because there is a God in the heavens. We come to worship because he deserves to be thanked. That's why we're here. There's time to turn just like with Belshazzar, he's facing the end, right? He's days before, I mean, he's minutes before being killed. Why bother sending him the hand in those three weights? Why give him a warning like that? I mean, he's seconds from his death. But even then, God was giving him a chance. Warnings are not judgment, they're opportunities always. So this is an opportunity. Belshazzar was a pagan king. But even if he had paid attention, he would have known that treating God's things carelessly would bring judgment. So Belshazzar takes the things of God and he treats them discourteously. And when Daniel criticizes him, he criticizes him for not paying attention to what the scriptures say. What Daniel says to Belshazzar is that God has warned you over and over again about these behaviors. He might as well have said, and he couldn't then, but he can now, he's written to you a book that you should have read. And if you had read it and understood it, you would have known how to navigate these days. But Belshazzar, you refused to listen. And now, because you refuse to listen, you've had to make all these decisions based on your wits. And I hate to say it, but you're not very smart. And none of us are. Without the word of God, you will not know your way. And one verse will never be enough. You need the whole thing. And I'm afraid that the church is not doing much better than Belshazzar did. And so the hand wrote three words on the wall. Now the, the magicians, the enchanters, the diviners, they knew what the three words were. They didn't need anybody to train. They weren't in a foreign language. They were three weights. It was clear he was, it, they were economic terms. It was like saying shekels and scales and measures so he they knew what the words were but they had no idea what they meant and so he sends the diviners tell me what these things mean and they i don't know what they mean they're afraid to get it wrong right maybe they remembered the story of nebuchadnezzar i don't know but finally daniel comes and it's not that daniel sees something they don't see he sees the words but he understands them that's what god gives to daniel he gives him the ability to understand the writing on the wall and so he sees these three weights but he not doesn't just see them he knows what they mean and there is a huge difference between reading a thing and understanding it there's a huge difference between listening to something and to actually comprehending it and so daniel tells him you've been weighed you've been found wanting and God is now going to give your kingdom to another. That's what they mean. Church, everything is going to change. And it's not the enemy doing it. The enemy was trying to build Babel on earth. The enemy was trying to build a kingdom of God on earth. 
insulated from the judgment of God and deaf to his speaking. This European-American project is the enemy's project. God is tearing it down. But not for destruction, for our good. Because the church has been deceived by the enemy. You serve the living Christ. And he will come and make all things new. Do not give up. This is only the beginning of the end. But it is the beginning of the end. We used to sing a song in the church. Tis a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. Washed in the blood of the Lamb. Wouldn't it be great to be clean when he comes? Wouldn't it be great to have the blood on our door frames? Wouldn't it be wonderful to not be part of the world that mourns at his coming? Listen to him and go in strength and in faith. God is with you. God is with you. These are his locusts, which means his salvation will also come from his hand. Praise God. Go in peace. Go in peace.